Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 119 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the lost soul Gottlieb. This is kind of negative, man. What's what's going on? Well, it does sound negative, but it just comes from a place of a lot of joy. I feel a little lost right now. The Pro Tour is over. This early standard format was like one of the coolest in a very long time. There was a lot to explore. There's all these awesome decks. And now it feels like things have finally authoritatively settled around the Pro Tour metagame. Now, that's a bad thing. There's still work to be done. But that pre-Pro Tour period was a lot of fun. It felt like anything was possible. And now we're in kind of a more static metagame. And I'm, I'm a little sad about it. I'll be honest. All right, question. Should we actually try and call it Mythic Championship instead of Pro Tour? We should. And look... <laughs> Whether I like the branding or not, it is now the Mythic Championship. And I'm not trying to be a smartass. It's just, it's really, really, really hard to stop calling it a Pro Tour. But yes, we should try and call it the Mythic Championship. And it was an outstanding Mythic Championship from a viewer's perspective. I can tell you that, especially when it comes to our very, very deserving champion, Autumn Burchette, an incredible performance on their part. Uh, jaw-dropping mastery of the mono blue deck. Yeah, Autumn Autumn absolutely crushed it. And I think if you want to learn how to play this deck, watch any of Autumn's matches. Yeah, they were just absolutely brilliant. And I was not surprised. I haven't interacted with Autumn all that often, but every time I do, they have something really intelligent, really insightful to say. Autumn is a member of our Discord and participates in conversations occasionally, not the most active user. That's okay. They've been very busy mastering this mono blue deck, so we can forgive that. But yeah, incredibly bright person, and I'm really not surprised at this outcome whatsoever, especially given all the success they were having leading up to this event with the same deck. Yeah, it's kind of funny to see Autumn happy to win their RPTQ, right? And it's like, oh, I got another invite, right? And then you win the Pro Tour. It's like, okay, (laughs) I have all the invites. Yeah, wild change of fortunes there. But again, very deserving. And what an emotional victory, too. And it's strange because, like, obviously, you're one of my very close friends. And I've seen you win a Pro Tour before. And don't get me wrong, that was an amazing moment. But it was just more like really proud of you and like happiness. But with Autumn, I found myself getting very emotional. And I think a lot of it was like Emma's reaction to their victory. And that was very striking. And it was just a really beautiful moment. Uh, and it put a tear in my eye. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit it. And I, I'm so happy that the Mythic Championship carried that much emotion with it for its inaugural tournament. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm right there with you. I was at the airport and I managed to catch like the last few turns before autumn one. And then 
uh, Emma and a few other folks like rushed the stage and, and hugged Autumn and everything. And I was just kind of like all smiles, you know? And then right. it was just like thinking about the gravity of this and the fact that this is the first non-male like pro tour slash MC champion. Like this is a, this is absolutely a game changer. Yeah. Huge, huge event in magic's history and all of it to be covered in just this dominant, super intense, like focused performance that was just on another level, really. I can't say enough about Autumn's play. In so many instances, you know, commentary would be like, I'm not sure if that was the correct decision, only for it to obviously be the correct decision 10 turns down the road. And that's what we were talking about with this mono blue deck, right? It rewarded mastery. It required mastery, quite frankly, and Autumn had it in spades. Yeah, absolutely. And then I was I was sitting on my plane and getting ready to take off and scrolling through Twitter and stuff and just reading people's reactions and stuff. And that that is when I got teary eyed was yeah. just, yeah, think thinking about, I don't know, just how the, how this affects people, you know, like representation is such a big deal and it does matter. And I think that this is possibly the best thing that could have ever happened to Magic. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't have happened to a nicer person. So congratulations, Autumn, from the bottom of my heart. It was really a thrilling weekend. I'm glad you shared that with me. Awesome, awesome sight to bold. Yeah, and I was waiting until things calmed down for them to ask them if they wanted to come on the podcast. And instead, I, I woke up to a message from Autumn asking if, if they could be on the podcast. I'm like, yes, absolutely. Uh, 100%, so that- 110%, whatever percentage I can possibly reach. Yes, please come on our podcast, Autumn, 100 hundred percent. Yeah. So, uh, waiting for things to calm down for them a little bit. Uh, so probably going to record that next week at some point. So that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, I got to play at the MC and I played boring Sultai. Like I think the last games of magic I played before the tournament were on the Sunday because I had this four part article series that needed to go up on SCG. And then I streamed Twitch rivals on the Wednesday leading up to it. And, Thursday was kind of my free day, but decklists were due on Wednesday. So I couldn't even do the normal like fly to a tournament while uh, wearing my brewing hat or anything. So I ended up playing Salt Eye. It was not great. I don't know. I I did okay. I, I started four and one and then ended six and seven uh, before dropping. And there were some other people who played similar lists to me that that did well. I know that while the tournament was happening, I was just like, ah, I wish I would have done this differently and this differently with my decklist. And then there was a guy I met at the tournament who was a patron and got my list and sideboarding guide and finished, I think 10 and six and was saying that like the deck was great and the sideboarding guide was great and everything. So it's like, all right, well maybe I did something right. Yeah. That's the question I wanted to ask you and obviously not the performance you were hoping for going into this tournament, but do you think something went wrong in your preparation? Do you think you made a mistake by playing soul tide? Because I think there's a lot of evidence that suggests while you may not have made the optimal choice, you probably made a fine choice. And I also think it's difficult to ascertain exactly what the optimal choice was here anyway. Like now having unpacked all of this and had a, having a chance to play with all the deck lists from the Mythic Championship and having seen the tournament play out, I don't know that if you rewind things and give me all this information, I know exactly what to send you into battle with at this point. Like, did you have incorrect assumptions? What exactly went on with your your deck list selection? I think the assumptions were good. I 
expected more mono blue than what actually ended up showing up. Like Nexus ended up being the second most played deck and mono blue Mm -hmm. was the third, but I also lost to mono blue the three times I played against it. So clearly something got messed up there. And we had cat light who does our social media on site collecting data. And I got the first glimpse at that this morning and it looks like Saltai won just a a hair under 50% of its matches overall. So obviously that is not a great sign. Like just a a straight 50% win rate is not what you need to be aiming for to have success in these big tournaments. So I don't know. I I think if I had more time, then I likely would have played a rekindling Phoenix deck, maybe something like Shota Takao's deck from GP Memphis. And I played a few matches last night, just, you know, had the itch or whatever. And, uh, ended up hitting Mythic on Arena and stuff. So I, I tweeted the deck list I used and the little sideboarding guide and everything if people want to check that out. But like, that deck just seems very good to me. Yeah, I streamed with it for a while today. And, uh, you know, I didn't play a huge number of matches, but I went something like six and two, seven and two, maybe. The deck felt quite powerful. Did seem to line up well with the format. So I could buy that with more time, you would have ended up in that place. Uh, I think a question to ask though, is that when the tournament is ultimately won by Mono Blue, and I'm not trying to toot our own horn, but like we were out in front of the Mono Blue thing. Absolutely. I think, you know, our podcast on the topic, along with uh, Hayne reaching rank one mythic and along with Autumn winning their RPTQ, were very much catalysts for people starting to take the Mono Blue list seriously. And yet you couldn't get yourself there. You couldn't get yourself onto the Mono Blue list. And again, that's not to say like, Mono Blue was the best choice for this tournament because honestly, what I'm seeing in terms of late tournament representation is kind of pointing to Esper being the correct call, which absolutely blows my mind because that was the furthest deck I was considering. You know who did consider Esper and put up quite a fine performance with the deck? Matt Costa. Also, Mattia Rizzi, who I got my Bilbao Top 8 deck list from. Right. I'm just going to listen to Mattia from now on. That might be the way to go. And the only 10-0 list in the tournament, I believe, or maybe there was a few. I'm not 100% sure. I, I think the only 10-0 list was an Esper control list as well. Did a deck go 10-0? There is a deck that's, I mean, on, on the Wizards website, which we'll decide how much faith we want to put in this, but under the list of decks, which they say have 30 points or 27 points, so either 10-0 or or nine and one. The top list is an Esper control list. To me, that's a 10-0 list in that grouping, but it could be com- some completely arbitrary distinction. Who knows? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to look at this. Oh, yeah. It's a, it says 10-0 or nine and one. Why wouldn't you just tell us? That's a good question. Right above that, actually, though, it does say one player finished with 30 points, 10-0 in the standard portion. Three players finished with 27 points. So okay. I, I thought I knew the 10-0 player was Esper Control, but that I'm not going to stake my reputation on that. I'm not 100% sure that was the case. But regardless, it does look like Esper had a great performance. And the more I kind of talked with people, it seemed like Esper pilots were just super comfortable with their soul time matchup. And as we learned as time went on from the mono blue side, that matchup is much closer to a 50-50 than we first expected. Yeah, I mean, I there are things that you can do to improve the matchup on both sides. I think the original Esper lists were very tap-out, expensive cards, and then they kind of 
got a little bit leaner and you know, it's just stuff like, you know, playing an additional copy of Negate, not playing as many Vraska's mm-hmm. Contempts and uh, Kaya's Wraths, maybe playing Cry of the Carnarium instead. It's, it's stuff like that, like the little tweaks that make a huge difference. And I definitely felt that playing some mono blue in the weeks leading up to the MC and getting paired against Esper and just being like, why aren't I crushing them anymore? I don't understand. Yeah, uh, there was but- a point where it was almost like a buy and then things changed as time went on. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of that is familiarity, too. You know, hmm. Pe- people just figure out how to actually sequence their spells against you. And like they just get used to the play patterns. It's like, OK, this is how these last turns played out. Therefore, your hand is probably this. Right. And I, I right. think people, you know, just get used to that over time. No, that's a good point. But yeah, as, as far as Sultai specifically, I don't think. Sultai is a bad choice. I do think that you have a game against everything. I think the thing that I probably blew was maybe respecting the mirror a little too much. And to that end, I basically ended up with just like not enough cards that did things to impact the board against mono blue. If that makes any sense, like Mm. you, you just have X amount of cards in your deck that, don't really do anything unless you're able to bait out like the pierce or the dive down that they have. So, you know, talking about like the Vivian's hostage takers, fine finalities. I played two carnage tyrants for the mirror match, which were very good there, but not particularly good against mono blue. And then you just have the green creature base, which is pretty solid and, and lets you race them a lot of the time. But if that is all you have going on, you're almost certainly going to lose. Basically, like you just want to max on ways that that actually interact with them. So, like, you know, more cast downs, uh, cheaper removal, maybe more crawl harpooners. I'd like to in my sideboard because I, it, you know, when I was playing a week before the MC, I was doing well against Mono Blue and didn't think that I necessarily needed that much help. But after playing the tournament and playing against people who were well-versed with their decks and prepared for Sultai and prepared for just playing against Crawl Harpooner and stuff, like I did not get the same results that I wanted. So I think not playing at all in the, the week leading up to it really cost me. So there's some evolution that went on with the Sultai mid-range decks at this Mythic Championship. The deck list that comes to mind for me would be Canister's deck list seemingly moving in a new direction, focused much more on the blue spells, four Thief of Saturday in the main deck, three Thought Erasure in the main deck. Did you consider builds like that at any point? I know uh, Martin Druza was also streaming with a build that looked a lot like this earlier in the week. It's something I saw leading into the Mythic Championship. And I think he ultimately played something a lot like Canister's list as well. What do you think about this kind of new angle for Sultai? A little bit more impact out of their spells. I think... That is the right direction to go, but I don't like the specifics of Canister's list a lot. Thought Erasure in general, eight mana dorks, his deck is just very, very threat light and doesn't do a good job of playing things that actually hold the fort against decks like the the various white aggro decks. Hmm. So there, there are things like that where I would be concerned, right? Where it's like Wild Growth Walker doesn't KO them, but it does do a good job of, you know, giving you a bunch of time to get to finality and stuff like that, where I wouldn't necessarily want to cut all the wild growth walkers and and whatnot just for thief of sanity, because I I think you just sacrifice too much in those matchups. Yeah. Obviously there's a set of the metagame that is being targeted 
pretty aggressively by making this shift and another set that you're just like, well, I'm going to get a lot of weaker here. Obviously, the red matchup is much worse. Uh, any kind of white aggro mat- matchup, as you mentioned, gets much worse when you make the shift to Thief of Sanity in the main deck. But if you look at how this tournament played out, you could see why you'd want to go in that direction. There was a ton of Sultai, a ton of Esper, a ton of the Simic Nexus decks, and decks like Mono Red and White Aggro, just not that represented, especially Mono Red. I think this was one we all saw coming. In fact, when I saw a group of players, uh, I, I think it was Lishi Tan who was playing just straight up 20 mountains and a bunch of red spells. I was kind of shocked. It seemed like an incredible choice given everything that had gone on in the format. And that kind of proved to be the case. One of the worst performing decks at this Mythic Championship was, in fact, Mono Red, the only deck that I saw that really did worse. And as you mentioned, you have some data collection going on right now, which I can't wait to take a look at. But the only deck I saw doing worse than Mono Red in initial results was Is It Drake's, which got absolutely obliterated, with the exception of Phoenix-based builds, which found their way into the top eight. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a Luis thing, though, right? I, I think there's data that's going to show that the Phoenix decks did better overall than the Is It Drake's list, but that's a very low bar to cross. I don't think any deck had a worse day two conversion rate than Is It Drake's. Like we said, going into the event, there's just not a ton of good matchups left for Is It Drake's. And at least with the Arclight angle, I'm sure Luis was able to eke out a fine Sultai matchup and target 25% of the field very effectively. Whereas the Is It Drake's list, I don't even know what you have a fine matchup against. Right. And then you're talking about Canister's list where he doesn't have Wild Growth Walker and instead has a bunch of creatures that just all die to shock, basically. And I I could see why you could potentially end up on that sort of deck, but just is it in general outside of its very good mono blue matchup? It's just not a very good deck. Like you said, the, the matchups across the board are just not very strong. Yeah, and Mono Blue didn't show up in the kind of numbers that it needed to for Is It Drake's to be a reasonable choice. I, I think that's ultimately the story of Is It Drake's in this tournament. Yep. Yeah, so if I could go back and do it all over again, I do think that I would remove the Wild Growth Walkers and Merfolk, or yeah, Wild Growth Walkers and Merfolk Branch Walkers because I would want to try Growth Chamber Guardian instead. And I, th- I think that that card is just not respected as much as it should be as a card that just puts pressure on the mono blue decks. Like I I think that is very effective at what it it does. And it, you lose out on the life gain aspect, like the pure racing aspect from wild growth Walker. But I would try and make sure that I insulate myself in a few other different ways by like playing an extra copy of cast down or like trimming a Vivian, trimming a fine finality, stuff like that. Yeah. Playing your gruel list today and, getting some reps in with Growth Chamber Guardian. It's interesting just how much play it gives you and how much pressure it puts your opponents under to make the right decision. It really dictates their play patterns. And that's one of the things I love in a magic card is when you get to set the terms of engagement of the match and everything becomes about when are you going to sink the mana into that adapt cost and when are you going to be able to find another Growth Chamber Guardian? And your opponent has to contemplate that at all times. And that gives you an advantage. Sometimes you get an advantage just by doing nothing and forcing their hand and you're able to leverage your advantage that way. And I really appreciate that aspect that Growth Chamber Guardian brings to the table in all of these decks, Gruul and the Sultai lists. You remember that I was I was more of a control guy, right? I do remember that. It seems like a long time ago now that you're 
always looking for an excuse to burn everyone out these days. But yes, I, I certainly remember <laughs> that. So do you do you know what caused that shift? No, please tell me. So I have this friend, Tim Bulger. We call him T-Bulge. Do you know T-Bulge? I feel like T-Bulge has come up on the cast before, but I don't believe I know him. So he always used to draft like these just absolute piles that were just like suicidally aggressive, like, you know, two man on one, two flyers and like these auras that just, you know, did nothing but pump your creature and just like, like he would just get two for one over and over again. He just wouldn't care. And it's Mm -hmm. just like this, this goes against like everything that I know about fundamentally about magic, right? Where it's like the creature auras in limited are pretty bad, right? But just at some point, I think mostly from playing poker, he realized that you have more control over a game by being the beatdown than you do by trying to actually be a control mage. Like like you're saying with Grow Chamber Guardian, like you are dictating the pace of the match, absolutely. And you just get to put your opponent into these like really bad corners and you get to decide that they don't. Yeah, I feel that immensely, especially when it comes to limited, because my limited play style is super aggressive. I love those like 15 land decks and a bunch of pump spells and cobbling together damage through creature enchantments. I draft in that fashion quite often uh, and quite successfully too. And the process you're describing is exactly right. You use your aggression to take away your opponent's choices and dictate the terms of the game. So I think that's a fine point. I haven't quite made the shift over in constructed yet because I I just don't feel it in the same way. And I know that's not a satisfying answer and I should be able to point to some really clear thing that says why I don't feel it the same way in constructed as I do unlimited, but it's more of like a je ne sais quoi. I don't, I don't know what it is. I, I can't express it. I just don't feel the same control when I'm taking aggressive strategies into a constructed tournament. Well, you're, you're picking up on it though, because of the growth chamber guardian thing. Like you, you are seeing it. You oh, know? absolutely. And, absolutely. And I think, I think that that gruel deck that like Shota Takao top eight in Memphis with that I've been playing does a very excellent job of doing that because you have like the best threats along the curve and then you have some removal spells, some amount of interaction and stuff. But for the most part, like they have to spend the game reacting to you and a lot of decks in the format just don't have the capability of doing that correctly. And then you play against something like Esper Control and you know, you just you have like haste creatures, things that don't die, creatures that right. draw you cards, and, and they have like Kaya's Wrath that they're leaning on super hard, and you just get to continually put them in bad spots, and it's awesome. Yeah, it's that no bad threats principle, right? Like there's only wrong answers, no wrong threats, which is certainly a simplification, but that's basically what it speaks to is they, they will end up dead if they don't answer what you're doing, and you're willing to leverage that in a lot of spots. Right. But what I'm basically getting at is like you put them into a position where if they don't cast Kai's Wrath, they lose. And if they cast Kai's Wrath, they lose. They lose. Right. Yep. Yeah, that's the end game for sure. And I appreciate that. And I I did feel that playing that Gruel deck today 100%. It's just like, okay, well, I'll extend into this finality. I hope they cast it because then I will kill them with my haste threat, you know, and it's right. They have, they have no outs essentially at that point. And it's nice when your deck can force those kind of situations. And I think that's what a truly good aggressive deck does. It forces those situations. Right. Exactly. I mean, the, the mono red deck basically does that by like, okay, we play this normal game of magic and then I have 12 points of burn spells or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing you can do about it. And then the white deck is just like they go super wide and pump their creatures and there's nothing you can really do about it. Right. That that is 
how these aggressive decks are winning in the format. And Mono Blue is doing kind of a similar thing where they have all this one mana interaction and wizards retorts and a card drawing engine. And not all of your cards interact with their cards in a positive manner. And I think that people need to be building their decks significantly differently going forward. And I definitely made that mistake this Pro Tour. And I would I would do things differently in a heartbeat. I would either register that gruel deck or look at playing a different version of Saltai, which is not as good at doing the things that normal Saltai is good at, but I think that the rules for the format have changed. Yeah, so I kind of want to run you through some of the other options in the format, and I'm curious why you fell at this point and are not considering something like Esper. We're, we're talking right now about how it appears like Esper was ready for this format, how it put forth a good effort. Still not something you're interested in at this stage? Is it just a playstyle thing or you still don't believe in the deck? What's going on there? No, Esper's good. It is good. I think once they lowered their curve and played Cry of the Carnarium, uh, it, it was very much a game changer. One of the things I really liked about Matt Costa's list in particular, and this is a point where he differed from a lot of other people playing Esper Control, is that Matt doesn't mess around, unsurprisingly, with cards like Precognitive Perception. He just has four Chemister's Insight. And I can't tell you how important it is to have access to eight reloads, essentially, even if they're not as good a reload as something like Precognitive Perception, which to me seems like a card tailor-made for these Simic decks, the ones that are trying to find a very specific card. Whereas a lot of times with this Esper deck, you just need raw card quantity because you need mana and spells. You aren't able to just look for one thing and leverage that to win the game. You just need more and more resources. That's what the deck's all about. And Matt did an excellent job recognizing that and just playing four copies of Chemistry's Insight, being able to convert the type of resources he needs at all stages of the game. I really appreciated that. And I think it's one of the things that made his list better than other lists I was playing in the past. Also moving away from the excessive mono red hate. Uh, we talked about how like Basilica Bell Haunt is almost unbeatable for these red decks, but just like the fact that that card exists has done enough to push red away at this point. Uh, and I think Matt did a nice job playing a little bit less hate for mono red out of the sideboard. Yeah, I agree with, with most of that, at least I do think that the format is kind of set up where you do want burst card drawing rather than this continually refuel thing that chemistry's insight does for you. So I, I would still argue in favor of precog, but uh, I, I also probably just need to play some games. Yeah, I have just hated precog every time it's been in my deck. And, you know, five is a world more than four. And you need to be active at multiple points on the curve. And it just does a really nice job of filling in mana efficiency on so many turns. Like the fact that there's eight virtual copies means that on all those turns where you'd otherwise just be sitting there doing nothing, of which Esper has many, and you can you can bear that, that's fine. But if you're able to use your mana efficiently, it's worth a lot more. And uh, I, I think just the four Chemistry's Insight versions of the deck do a much better job at doing so. I'm going to disagree with that for now. Okay. Play some games, get back to me, check in on it, because I started very high on precog perception. I'll say that. I thought it was a very powerful card and exactly what these decks wanted. And as I've played more and more Esper, and it is a deck I've played a good amount at this point, I've come to appreciate Chemistry's Insight a lot more. Well, the the difference is that now these decks have lowered their curves, so I think that precog also just gets a lot better once that has been done. Yeah, because it's kind of doing the same thing where you're able to fill in mana inefficiency and, you know, use your spells more efficiently. On like turn seven, it's more likely you can play precog and play another spell. So I, I get what you're saying there. It was a marked difference for me too, though. 
It also just means that you're under less pressure by the time where you get to cast Precog. It's not like you're sure. leaning on turn four Kaya's Wrath to catch you back up. You're casting Cry on turn three, which then buffers your life total by a lot and then gives you the time to actually hit Precog. And then once you Precog, you're looking at so many cards that like the game might as well just be locked up at that point. I think your cards are too similar, though. Like, Don't you think there's too much overlap in what a lot of these cards do where you're not really searching for any one particular thing at a given moment? It's just like, okay, give me removal. Give me counter magic. I'll make it all work as long as I can just chain these cards together. And, you know, you might get six cards deep, but it, it's not that much of a downgrade on Chemistry's Insight and you're able to do it across multiple turns, which is nice. I don't know. It, it's just, again, more of a feel thing. And I wish I was doing a better job expressing exactly why the difference was stark to me. Like I thought it was a huge improvement just to have my four copies of Chemistry's Insight and always have access to it on turn four. Just making that fifth land drop too. It's nice to have a little buffer there and make sure that always happens as well. Sure. I just think that, like having the fathom troll kind of aspect of it where you just make sure that you draw three business spells matters mm-hmm. so much more than just basically like, you know, cycling chemistry's insight and drawing an extra card. Okay. I don't know. Well, I'd- I'll I'll, s- I'll send you some some uh board states of like where <laughs> where I'm at like 16 and have precog and then the game just ends. Sure, I can buy that. And I'll send you the board states where if I didn't have a four mana card draw spell, I miss my fifth land and just like die horribly. So they, they definitely go both ways. I mean, if you precog, maybe you play 27 land, but yeah. That's something to consider for sure. And, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe it needs to be more holistic deck building. And maybe we're both right, right? It's just about how you build your deck around these cards. Nah, only one of us is right. Okay. <laughs> you can never, never compromise. There's no compromise on the game podcast ever. That's one of our hard and fast rules. We seek the truth, my friends. I, I agree. Uh, sometimes there's multiple truths, I think. Nah. No, there's, only one truth. There is, there, right. There, there is one thing that is definitely better, and then there's one thing that's like pretty close and okay. I don't know. I, I mean, like... <laughs> Because then it's all, it's all about context on the other side, too. It's like, what metagame are you expecting? Is one different? Is one better against a broader set of metagames? Is one better for a more targeted metagame? And then it's like percentage of confidence, and that's informing all your decisions. And then it gets real mathy. And I was an English major. I don't need to be doing any math. I'll just make a fool of myself. So I like to skip that part and just say a couple of different scenarios couldn't be right. It's like, it's like Whispers of the Muse versus Factor Fiction. No. It is not. It's not even close. Well, I'm just saying like one is like this slow grindy thing, right? And then the other one is just like burst card advantage. One is you win the game. Which one is win the game? Fact or fiction. Oh, no, I don't even think fact or fiction would be that good right now. (laughs) You you think it's well, not right now. Things have changed a lot since the heyday of fact or fiction. That's for sure. Yeah. Anyway, we can we can move on. I mean, Costa played four insights, so it's probably right. Right, that's a good uh, a good point in Insight's favor, and put up a very fine showing as well. I believe eight and two on the day, so props to him. And I believe he'll be playing the next Pro Tour based on that finish. So good job, Matt. Yeah, but it's it's modern. Like I, I want to ask for his help for standard specifically, but I feel like I'm just not gonna get the help that I need. Yeah, well, I I think there's a lot of people in the same boat as you right now, fearing this modern tournament and. Uh, maybe it's time to transition now. Uh, there's some crazy stuff going on with this modern tournament that's going to be played under a new set of mulligan rules called the London Mulligan. 
tell me tell me how you feel about this mulligan rule because we haven't actually talked about this we haven't and i think it's really interesting and i will tell you exactly how i feel about it i am going to play games using it and then i will tell you how i feel about it because as of now (laughs) i have not played games as a bold take I think the instinct is to be like, this is huge. This is dramatic. This changes everything. And especially as you go further and further back, I think it changes more and more in the context of vintage. It does a tremendous amount, but it's doing so on both sides. It's making answers and threats better. Uh, Obviously, there's some decks which want a certain specific card and function on a different level when they have that card. And this seems like a huge boon in their favor. But I saw something, and this is not my math, so I can't confirm this. I saw something like in Vintage Dredge, like Serum Powder, Bazaar, Baghdad Dredge, which I don't know how we're talking Vintage Dredge right now in this podcast. But essentially, as it stands now, they have like a 96% chance of being able able to open on bazaar and with the new mulligan rule it goes to like 98 so is it better yes is it markedly better not really it's still the same problem that it's always been and it's still like an ultra powerful deck and it still has the same weaknesses and you know ley line mulligans are affected similarly so you can talk about that as an answer so i think there's just too much to shake out from this while the instinct is that oh these combo decks get much better the eldrazi decks get much better i i buy all of that i think that's true but to me, it seems like something like Death Shadow could get a lot better as well. And, you know, these answer-based decks could also get better. And I think Amulet probably gets better. And what isn't really getting better? That's the question I have. And I don't have an answer for that right now. Okay, so we talk about Vintage Dredge because it's the easiest outlier for people to point out and be like, oh, look how busted this is. And I do mm. think it does matter that you get to start with Bizarre and you know, like an actual dredge card versus like mulliganing to one and getting your bizarre and then not knowing where your dredge cards are. Right. Right. Like the, sure. the fact that the fact that you have more resources by the time you find your key card does matter a ton. And just looking at the numbers and being like, Oh, well, like once they find bizarre, that's it. That's all they care about. It's like, not really. I mean, like you still need to find a dredge card. So I do think that it, it makes vintage dredge much stronger. And again, I, I don't know why, you know, we're actually talking about this because who cares? But in the context of modern specifically, I can think of a few decks that I would categorize as low resource combo decks where right. Storm currently like, yeah, you could set up a good hand or whatever, but like you still need lands and like a brawl yes. and a bunch of rituals and whatever. Like you, you actually can't afford to mulligan. Like you would, you would just rather keep like seven whatever cards versus trying to abuse this mulligan down to like five or four cards, right? However, right. the outliers, I'm gonna, I, I wrote all of these down on my phone. The one thing that I am most excited about and which I, I think is going to be awful, but I am excited to do to people is just decks that are trying to play Chalice of the Void on turn one. Mm-hmm. Because e- even if you're on four cards or whatever, and you find your Spirit Guide Chalice or your Gemstone Caverns or whatever, you Chalice on one, it gives you so much time. And then presumably the rest of your deck is like Eldrazi or uh, Goblin Rabble Masters or whatever. And like, you don't need a bunch of resources to actually win. Yeah, and you could put turn one Blood Moon decks in the same category. In fact, there's a lot of overlap there, so they're often the same decks. Yeah, anything that basically has a KO punch on turn one, certainly you have to look at in a whole new light and see if it's gotten upgrades. 
I think Eldrazi as a whole, you know how much better Eldrazi are when you find Eldrazi Temple. Uh, there's going to be more Eldrazi temples now in opening hands. Uh, if this mulligan existed back during Eldrazi winter, it would have been even more nightmarish. So you're right. Low resource combo decks and one hit KO decks essentially are the biggest beneficiaries of a rule change like this. There's just a question of how much did the answer decks benefit? You know, if you have a one mana answer, or if you have surgical extraction in your deck, or, you know, whatever you're using to kind of blunt this approach, what's it going to be like? I don't, I don't think we know yet. Okay. So other, other low resource combo decks, uh, Gorios Vengeance, and this is more traditionally Gristle Brand to the point where, you know, you just want, Gorio's looting, Gristle Brand, Spirit Guide, whatever, and then yep. you can presumably set up a kill either on that turn or on the next turn. <laughs> Siggy mentioned Restore Balance, which is sure, whatever. I mean, I, I don't think that that deck really does anything, especially if we're talking about a format where other people are trying to combo you. Right. And then Ad Nauseum, which is a higher resource-based combo deck similar to Storm, but it is very much about specifics, right? It's like you want a Pentad Prism, a Lotus Bloom, something like that to generate mana, and then you need your two-card combo. Or post-board, you're trying to find like Leyline of Sanctity to protect your hand from discard and stuff, and you right. don't want to draw the Lightning Storm and all, all these various things where it's like getting the Brainstorm actually matters a lot. Yeah, I, I buy that for Ad Nauseam, and I remember the PTA I played ad nauseum. I definitely won a game on a mulligan to four. It can function as a low resource combo deck. It was a mulligan to four where I didn't play a turn one land and I won the game easily actually. Yep. So yeah, you're, you're spot on. That's a deck that can definitely benefit from this kind of card selection, but still what of these answer decks? What of the decks that can present spell pierce on turn one? And you know, that's not something we really fight over a lot right now in modern but if the rules of engagement change there's still powerful spells out there there's still options like spell pierce uh, obviously we are missing force of will days to be a limiting factor on the format legacy has those cards though so if we're going to talk about this rule as it applies to legacy I, those cards will certainly come into play so I don't know. I, I want to see how it shakes out before I decry doom and gloom. It comes at an interesting time for modern, though, because I actually think as far as the modern format stands, uh, it might be more figured out right now that it's been in a very long time. Yeah. So real quick, other decks uh, that made my list, Hollow One, the Prison decks, Eldrazi, maybe Tron, maybe Amulet, and... As, as far as like the answers thing, people make the argument of like, oh, well, now it's so much easier to find your ley line, right? But think of the decks that exist already. And I think Burn and Dredge are two of the biggest offenders where these decks are very clearly trying to not interact with you, right? You mm -hmm. need so many different hate cards against all of mm -hmm. these different decks. They're not all operating on the same axis. So I don't care that my Jun deck can find its lane line of the void more reliably or whatever, because what about all the other decks that are going to kick my ass, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so are you at a place of fear for this tournament now? Are you not looking forward to the modern mythic championship because you have to play under this context? Or do you think it's an interesting new puzzle to solve? Or do you think this is just a straight up blunder and this shouldn't even be considered for modern? I am scared. I, I know that they normally try these new mulligan rules at pro tours, which mm. is fine with me. 
because it's like, oh, Mulligan and a scry. Like, yeah, that's fine. Like, this is still magic, right? But like, especially with this tournament being modern, it's entirely possible that this tournament is not magic. Okay. I think time will tell. This is a really exciting rule for standard play. I really like it in and that limited. context. And, and limited. limited. Great point. Great point. It's strange that its first run is going to be for modern, but it does seem like maybe the place where it's most abusable. So why not start with the worst case scenario and take it from there? I don't know. It'll be interesting. I guess I get to be a little bit more tempered about these things because I probably won't be participating in this mythic championship. So I get to sit back as a spectator and it's very easy for me to be like, Oh, whatever happens, happens. I'll watch and it'll play out either way. Meanwhile, you're going to play for tens of thousands of dollars and are very much invested in like the integrity of that tournament. So you come at it from a different angle and I respect that. But for me, I'm interested to see how this experiment pans out. I'm interested to see what players can do with it. And I wonder if it's, you know, just going to be a completely shattered format. My instinct is no. My instinct is a lot of the same truths will hold about modern. And I I think there's a very clear best deck in modern right now. And I think uh, if other things maybe get a point of power in their pocket, it might not be the worst thing. The problem is the decks that are getting the point of power are the ones that people kind of bemoan and hate. But as we see, nothing stops modern's popularity. And the existence of Tron didn't stop it from you know, creating this runaway freight train and same with Splinter Twin and all these other kind of abrasive decks. So ultimately, we'll see what the aficionados of the format think. Just think it's a bad idea to do something that could end up being bad in a tournament that matters a lot for a lot of people. And I'm not even talking about myself here because like, you know, I'm I'm MPL, like I'm cute for all these things. The tournament results right. for the most part don't actually matter all that much to me which obviously is coming from a, a place of privilege and all that but it's still just like what about these other people like what about nick prince right where he cues for this tournament playing standard celestia tokens just like the most fair thing of all time right? <laughs> right and now you're just thrown into like the actual deep end of the swimming pool and you don't you don't have your little floaties on anymore you know and like the rules are changing and all this stuff and you're not affiliated with a big team to be able to figure out all this stuff. And it just seems like it could potentially be a bunch of nonsense. And there's, there's no way to test it too, which is just like another ridiculous thing. That's the biggest problem. And also like that speaks to why we're having to do this as well, because if magic online was like as functional as it theoretically should be, you would just test this out of Magic Online, right? It's the easiest place to get a huge amount of data, understand exactly what's happening, and then make a decision. Except they probably can't code this for whatever reason, which is kind of mind-blowing. There has to be some way to do it, but they don't seem to have any interest in it. I haven't heard any mention of this rule being implemented on Magic Online prior to this PT. Oh, and by the way, the limited portion of this PT is also a pre-release and you're not going to be able to practice that on magic online either. That so, I'm fine with whatever. There's a lot of people who feel just as strongly about that in terms of preparation. And a lot of people who think, you know, some people are going to have an edge if they have a relationship with a retailer or, you know, what, whatever means if they get to participate in, you know, a show tournament with, I, I think the loading ready run folks do a tournament generally, prior to any pre-release, you know, if someone gets to participate in that, do they have an advantage? People are really up in arms about it. I think it's kind of exciting. I think there are some implementation issues and, you know, it seems like some people are maybe 
going to get beat up by the policy, which isn't great. I certainly don't want to see anyone not be able to run a successful pre-release based on this. Uh, And I think I initially understated how much of an impact this might have on some stores. But as far as just in the bubble of this tournament, I think it will, again, make for a really exciting tournament. It just depends what the player experience is like. So it being a pre-release Pro Tour, I'm fine with it basically cannibalizing the pre-releases of LGSs is obviously something I'm not a fan of. Uh, Mm -hmm. I do think that, you know, this tournament could have just been one week later or you could have the stores have like a pre-pre-release the week before or something and everything would be fine, right? But instead you're holding it on like the biggest uh, or one of, you know, the four biggest weekends a store can possibly have, assuming they focus pretty heavily on magic and stuff. And I think that that is probably going to have some pretty bad effects uh, just because the thing is linked to the GP. I think just to be clear, I I do think they announced that the UK stores will get access to like a day earlier pre-release as well. I I don't know the specifics of it. They did make some kind of concession where these stores should have access to some kind of exclusive pre-release. I don't know if that's going to make them whole. Um, I don't know if it's on a Thursday. I, I think so. Yeah. Cool. Who knows? Uh, it's yeah. it's not the it's not the same as being able to hold a tournament on a Saturday when people aren't working or whatever, but Right. Yeah. Right. I mean if they if they're doing something, kudos to them. I I do appreciate that. I'm sure the, the stores appreciate that too, but it's like, you know, a weekday, one weekday of pre releases versus two weekend days of pre releases definitely not as good for them. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're spot on. So we'll have to see how that all shakes out. But interesting times for Magic, to be sure. This is going to be a, a wild Mythic Championship, and obviously coming on the heels of another like wild new tournament where we have this MPL Invitational thing going on. And Magic feels very different right now. I'll say that. Yeah, if someone wants to break Duo Standard for me, let me know because I haven't even really thought about it yet. We'll have to talk about it at some point. Uh, we'll at least give it a passing mention here on the cast. I'm sure, uh, not that too many people on the planet are really all that invested in it, but I'm sure people always like to hear your thought process and know where you're at. So it wouldn't surprise me if we circle back around to that. So the, the Thursday before the pro tour, local stores are going to be having pre-releases, which means that a bunch of people who are queued for the PT are going to be in town in London. Going to those stores probably and i guess like that is their playtesting for the tournament so yeah maybe maybe this this uh plan to help the stores ends up backfiring i don't know yeah i don't i don't know what's gonna go on there it'll be interesting to see uh do you want to talk about modern currently i guess i like humans what do you like i am at the point now where i've kind of consumed the kool-aid and uh i i think phoenix is just the best thing you can be doing i think the Otter builds are still interesting, stuff like the Mono Red Phoenix lists. Uh, but ultimately, I just think like Thing in the Ice Phoenix is the best deck in the format. And if you're a best deck person, you should probably just focus all your efforts on knowing that deck inside and out and tweaking your sideboard to be perfect every week. And it's strange to me that you are into humans given that context, because what I've seen of humans is just a severe, severe struggle with Thing in the Ice. So why do you like humans right now? What's what's bringing you in that direction? You know you can change cards in your deck, right? Right, and I would love. I am not a humans <laughs> master. I would love to know what cards you are changing to effectively deal with uh, these Phoenix decks, which seem like they're only gaining metagame share on a week to week basis. Yeah, so Phoenix is 
good, but it is not like busted good to the point where it is going to be a mainstay of modern forever. There are decks like Burn and Dredge and Tron that are not great matchups for Phoenix. And the metagame share of decks like that is only going to increase as Mm -hmm. Phoenix's popularity increases, right? And Phoenix is not going to be able to stick around through all that. So this this is definitely a thing that will not last. And I'm I'm kind of trying to get in front of it by basically looking for other decks that are good against the top decks and also good against Phoenix. And I, I think that humans with Reflector Mage is good against Thing in the Ice. And that's basically like the only main deck card that people have outside of like Thalia that is good against it. But... Mm-hmm. I think that that's fine. Like there are games where they could not draw a thing in the ice or they don't draw a bunch of manamorphoses or you have Thalia or you mage it or whatever. And that's all well and good. And then sideboard, obviously you have a ton of options of, you know, just playing dismembers and stuff like that. But I also think that between a lot of the top decks, they're very weak to Oriok champion. Well, Oriok champion kind of trending down recently. Haven't seen a ton of it. It was always a Jund beater back in the day. Uh, you're ready for it to return, though. Yeah, so people who have played humans have generally just had two, and they've built their sideboards in such a way where it's like, you know, you have like six to eight cards you can bring in in every matchup. So Oriok mm-hmm. Champion wasn't really a hammer, but it was like this thing that was kind of okay against Death Shadow, and it's like kind of okay against Burn and stuff like that. And now you're starting to see lists that just play four in their sideboard, and I think that makes a ton of sense right now just because of how much of the metagame is actually just super weak to it. Yeah, it certainly can find some good matchups for it. Another deck, which I think is very much on the rise, would be Grixis Death Shadow. Uh, yep. More and more of that deck on a week-to-week basis. What do you think about the Grixis Death Shadow versus Phoenix matchup? That's kind of like the marquee fair matchup of the format right now. And I've heard opinions going both ways on that. Have you had a chance to play either side of that matchup? It, it is almost as tense as Grixis against Burn, like Burn before Skewer. Right. Where you you just enter into this two-turn window where it's like, all right, are they going to make a move? Am I going to make a move? If I I don't make a move and they just have like the three things they need to kill me, I'll I'll die. But if their hand is pretty bad, I can kill them over two turns. You know, it's it's just like this really intricate, complex thing that I think ultimately favors Shadow just because of how large Death Shadow is and... They don't mm. particularly care about thing in the ice because they have so much removal, you know, and and right. discard and all that stuff. So I, right. I think Shadow is favored. Obviously, if you just put like three Phoenixes in play or whatever, they're they're never going to beat you. But it, those draws are so rare. They are. It's it's nice to have that option in your back pocket, though. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Amulet. I think the deck is still great. I think it made some very intelligent adaptations to the format moving to white getting access to path exile people are doing a lot of strange stuff with amulet the deck continues to evolve you're starting to see more and more coalition relics something that dom harvey uh, certainly was one of the first i saw to pick up that card and i'm seeing more and more coalition relics i'm starting to see some people return to explore which quite frankly i've been mostly focused on standard recently so i haven't gone back to these explore lists i i bristle a little bit at it but there's some evidence that you just can't reliably keep your creature enablers around anymore and you need some more spell-based access to ramp. So uh, maybe a return to explore is exactly what you need. But on the whole, I think Amulet continues to adapt, which is interesting because I think if 
you ask people a couple months ago, they would say Amulet's this thing. It's the worst version of a deck that used to exist, and it is what it is. But when people kind of really put some effort into it, we found a lot of new angles in the deck, and it continues to present new angles. Uh, and it's a really fascinating deck, and I think you're rewarded for just sticking to it. So people who have been playing Amulet to this point, you don't have to go anywhere. I think your Amulet deck can continue to adapt. So if I were attending GPLA this weekend, I would be very much torn between just playing Phoenix and continuing to play Amulet, and I would let my results kind of dictate my choice. You're not going? I am not going. I, Why look, not? I, I don't have any reason to play Grand Prix right now. They are essentially very, very expensive PTQs that I have to fly very far away for and be away from my wife from the for the whole weekend. So as of right now, I, I'm not sold on GPs. I hope something changes with the system where you can entice me to, again, participate in GPs. But as it stands right now, GP Seattle is my next GP, and I'm not really traveling this year. Uh, unless some incentives are put in place to say, oh, maybe you could chain a few a few events together and have a nice little run on the Pro Tour for a little while. But right now, that's not an option. And uh, that was always what was really important to me. So uh, GPs are out for the time being. You are looking at this way too, and I'm using air quotes here, logically. Oh, am I? Uh, so yeah, you're looking tell at me it the, like- Tell me the illogical way to look at it, please. Well, no, the actual logical way to look at it is- that just playing in a tournament that is a PTQ might not seem appealing, but it's like you're you're kind of doing like magic full time, man. Like it does pay to get out there and meet people and buzzword, buzzword, build your brand, et cetera. Right. <laughs> uh, they, they are doing cover. They are doing coverage now. So that helps. They are playing yeah. in big tournaments would give us more stuff to talk about on the cast. It gives us more things to put on social media, more things for you to uh, like talk about. Uh, as far as like, oh, this is like this cool thing that happened or, you know, this was an interaction with these humans that I that I met and everything. And I don't know, man, I, I think going to tournaments is something that you should be trying to do if you want to continue doing magic stuff full time. That's all. I, I think that's a fair point. I do think there's good replacements for attending GPs. I think like, you know, playing a magic online PTQ could be just as good a replacement, quite frankly. Uh, there's certainly a missing community aspect there, but look, it's expensive to travel to a bunch of GPs. I mean, there's, there's no way around it. And people ask this question all the time. Like, how do you finance these things? And quite frankly, the answer is out of my bank account. Like it's a losing proposition to go to a ton of magic tournaments. And, you know, a weekend in LA is going to cost anywhere in the neighborhood after plane tickets and hotels. And, you know, I, don't tend to travel super frugally if we're being honest. So I'm down a thousand bucks to go to this tournament. And what? Oh, for sure. You don't think it costs you that much? You are ridiculous, dude. I played a GP in LA last year where I flew down Saturday morning, flew back Sunday night. I was gone for a day and a half. Like I flew with like everything in a backpack and like the, the flights are like 200 bucks round trip from Seattle to LA. You could you could crash on like Nick Prince's couch or whatever. I'm sure. Well, that's very nice of you to invite me over to Nick's house. Nick, I'll be there first thing Saturday morning. <laughs> have the couch ready for me. <laughs> yeah, look, there's always ways to do it more cheaply. It's uh, it's two hundred dollars. I I don't think it stops at two hundred dollars. I think there's other costs. You know, eating your meals out and hotels and things like that, and my Ubers to the airport and Ubers around town and. 
whatever. It may not be a thousand dollars, but it is an expensive weekend. I need a little bit more to incentivize me at this point. And coverage coming back is a big, big part of it for sure. Where there was no chance of doing any type of coverage stuff, and uh, the world would not know if I were to win this tournament. That takes away a lot of the emphasis on these events. Uh, we would only know. In the past we would few promote days. you. That's true. We would say a lot about it. Uh, only in the last few days has coverage returned, which I have. Of course, very excited about. I think coverage is a key part of Magic. I would be heartbroken to see GPs just completely abandoned. And it does seem like the folks running the GP over at Channel Fireball will be stepping up and providing some coverage. So kudos to them for getting that done. I think it's an extremely important part of the tournament experience here. But look, man, I got a lot of travel coming up. We have the Hunter Burton Memorial Open that we're traveling to. We're going to Cincinnati the week after that. We're all over the globe right now. I know you're about to travel a very, very long distance. And sometimes it's like, well, I am going to spend this weekend at home. I was just in Las Vegas last week. I spent some time in Canada. So we're all over the place right now. And I am appreciating the weekend off this weekend. All right, man. I'm, I'm just saying there's there's more to it than than just playing in a GP and, you know, queuing for the PT or whatever. I also think that a thousand dollars is just ludicrous and you might be used to just like staying in a hotel by yourself or whatever, but like you should just not be doing that. Like there are plenty of cool people that you can hang out with and certainly enough people that listen to the podcast that are going that you could share hotels with. Uh, I stayed in an Airbnb with Yo Man 5 and, and three other people from the Discord at the PT and it was a wonderful experience. Uh, I'm sure it was. I've met Yeoman. He's a great, great individual. I would happily share an Airbnb with him. Well, I, I guess that means you'll be at GPLA this weekend, right? And no, because I'm traveling share- tomorrow. Oh, okay. Okay, I see. I'm traveling I see. tomorrow. I, I, have, I have things to do, people to see, and I've fallen way far behind. And dude, I'm, I want to go to every single West Coast GP I can. I was sick for the other two, and then this one, I'm just going to be gone. That is not my fault. Okay. We'll we'll plan more GP trips. I, I promise. We can put something beyond, besides Seattle on our calendars. We'll make it happen. We'll pick out a special event where there'll be tons of game listeners and the game discord. I think there's a lot of buzz around possibly GP Richmond right now, a long flight. But if everyone's going to be there, I will make the effort to make it to that GP 100%. And it sounds like people are congealing around that one right now. Why Richmond? I don't know. I think it's a. I, I think a lot of our Discord is located on the East Coast, so it's a very central location, and a lot of the West Coasters just know it works for them. The last kind of big meeting for the game Discord was at GP Portland, which you also missed, by the way. Uh, I, but was I was there. sick. Okay, I was saying. sick. I was Cedric there. Poisoned me. Yeah, well, that I believe. But you know, the last meetup was on the West Coast, and I think they want to do something out on the East Coast. So if everyone's going to be there, I, I will certainly make an effort to get to that GP. All right, fine. Book it, at least for Done. you. I don't know if I can book it quite yet. But right, we'll you'll, just, you'll just get sick again. I'm, I'm kind of sniffly right now, actually. So There you go. We'll see. Uh, you want to talk about Legacy real quick? What do you like in Legacy? Quick hit. Well, I just played a legacy tournament this past weekend over at uh, Mox yeah, Bellevue. But, okay, so two things. A, I hope you don't like that deck. And B, it is <laughs> very amusing to me the amount of people that were like, ah, Jerry's Niv Megas crap infected you when you were the one who came up with it. Yeah, I keep that on the low. I let people assume that it's, it's your fault. The deck is fine. It's not like a revolution or anything. It's an interesting angle. And at least it is a 
white blue Delver Stoneforge deck that is cognizant of its limitations. Like I keep seeing these blue white Delver decks that are like just inherently fair. They don't have super aggressive clocks and they're like, oh, I'll hold combo down with four force of will in four days. Are you kidding me? That's not going to do anything to stop combo. You need to take some actual measures and Flusterstorm is a nice measure. Uh, you get some good setups with Niv Magus Elementals. You can set up quick clocks in certain situations. It's a neat angle for the deck to have access to. I don't know if it's a revolution or anything. Actually, I know it's not a revolution. It's just another good deck. But the best deck in Legacy probably continues to be a Grixis variant, either Grixis Control or Grixis Delver. I would lean towards Grixis Control if I was playing the SCG event this weekend. Or if I wanted to get froggy, I would run back the blue-white deck. It really depends on how much you believe in the positioning of Stoneforge Mystic plus True Name Nemesis right now. If you think those two cards are uniquely well-positioned and combined well, I do like this particular build of Delver that leans on Niv Magus Elemental. Uh, otherwise, you can go with the Grixis deck and not go wrong. Yuck. I like Baleful Strix and Basic Land, but I don't like Grixis Control. I think the Yuriko decks are good. Oh, what deck? I, I don't even know what deck you're talking about right now. Yuriko is the, the commander ninjutsu card. Oh, good Lord. I've seen only the Vegas mentions of this card. You think this is the real deal? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So maybe a breakout performance for Yuriko this weekend, as predicted by Jerry Thompson. We shall see. We shall see which there are more of in the top eight, Niv Magus Elementals or Yuriko's. <laughs> I mean, dude, I'd even give you like three to one odds. I probably still wouldn't take them. <laughs> but this is a strange state for Legacy to be in where these are the two cards we're speculating on. Four to one? I'll wager you attendance at one GP of your choice. That's that. that's not how odds work. I, I know. You have to owe me four GPs of my choice if, okay. uh, if they hit. I don't know what GPs I would send you to. That's, the, that's really not a good bet whatsoever. And you'd happily go, so... Yeah, probably. I, I could find four. Like, yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be that tough. Right. I used to go to like 15 Grand Prix a year, so. Yeah, you're a warrior, man. I'll give it to you. Ah, not so much anymore. Now I, I travel for leisure. Leisure. That's always good. Nothing wrong with a little leisure. And you worked hard leading up to this Pro Tour and been working hard as well this week, getting data together, getting articles together. So everyone's entitled to a break every now and then. Oh, man, dude, life doesn't slow down. I don't know what you're talking about. It doesn't, but you got to find time. You got to make time for relaxation or you'll just get overwhelmed. And I know you will this week. Yeah, I'll be I'll be sad when people are playing a bunch of decks that just lose to humans. Uh, yeah, maybe it'll turn out to be the perfect metagame for you and you'll regret your decision. Somehow, I think you will not regret your decision regardless of what happens to the metagame. But still, we can we can pretend on that fiction. Yeah, I'll pretend to care. OK. All right. We have a question. Question comes from the lovely people in the game podcast discord. And this question comes from Nick Prince. Do you have any favorite BDM stories since this was his last weekend on coverage? Brian David Marshall, for those of you who don't know, is officially the Pro Tour slash Mythic Championship historian. And that's no joke. He knows everything and everyone, and he has rightfully earned his title. Uh, he was... Basically, the the floor reporter, uh, sometimes commentator, and everything. But if he if you saw an interview with a player, it was it was probably him or Marshall. Yeah, this is uh, this is a sad, sad day for Magic. I uh, how could you not associate BDM with coverage? I since I've been watching Magic Pro Tours, certainly BDM has been there. 
always the face of the game, one of the iconic voices of Magic, and you will be sorely, sorely missed. BDM and I have only spoken a couple of times, so it's you would think being from the Northeast, I would have more you know association with him, but I really wasn't too involved in the tournament scene when I was younger. It's more of a recent thing in my life. But I, I will say that I remember after my GP Top 8 at GP Atlantic City, I was just in the hotel, maybe the day after, it might have been on the Monday, and BDM was walking through and he took the time to stop and talk with me. And, you know, he wanted to know about my weekend and, you know, how long have I been playing Magic and what was, you know, my prior, did I have any prior Pro Tour experience and, you know, what, what was I basically thinking in the aftermath of having a really, you know, nice performance on the weekend. And it didn't come from a place of him doing his job. He just wanted to know me as a person. He wanted to understand my experience. He wanted to uh, congratulate me. He wanted to take a moment to appreciate my accomplishment. And this was the first time we ever spoke. And in that moment, it was incredibly clear to me that he was just this incredibly genuine, honest, and caring person who loved both magic and magic players more than anything on the planet. And it was it was immediately clear. It just shone through in everything about his personality. And someone like that being an ambassador for the game, that's that's exactly what you want. That's whose hands you want the game to be in. And I'm going to be really sad to see BDM go. I hope he's still around. I have a feeling Magic is so deep in his veins. He's going to find his way to plenty of events and GPs and Mythic Championships. I, I hope that's not just wishful thinking on my part, but I hope I cross paths with BDM again. And uh, who knows, maybe things always have a way of circling back around. Maybe he will have another opportunity to be involved with Magic again in the future. I certainly hope so. The game is worse without him, without question. Yes, absolutely. I, I basically could not have said it better myself. And all the things you said, I had just the ex- exact same experience with him. Like for for me, I was playing Magic a lot and started going to like more and more tournaments. And he he pays attention. He pays attention to like, yeah, you know, everyone who is doing well. It's like I, I think he knows that it's like, OK, this is this first this person's first GP top eight or whatever. This is how that makes them feel. Okay. This is like their first pro tour, their first pro tour cash. Like he automatically understands the human element of it and actively tries to seek it out. Basically just what you were saying. And for me, I, I was a shitty kid. Absolutely. And I, I kind of wrote an article about this on star city called social currency. If people have not read that, they should absolutely read it because it, is, it it lets you know a little bit more about me as a person and my history and everything. But like, you know, there I am at like some some nationals tournament, right? And we're just sitting in a, in a circle talking. And I, th- I think that this manifests itself in ways now where you tell me that you're not going to Grand Prix or whatever. And I try to pressure you into going to them because I do think it's in your best interest. Uh, for the most part, you know, but it's like back then I used, I I would probably handle it a different way where it's like, I would yell at people. I would call them stupid, blah, blah, blah. You know, like I was not super good at motivating people, but I was very clear to let people know when they disappointed me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I think a lot of people just saw me as like very negative and very harsh and everything. And we're, we're sitting there in the circle talking and something like that happened. And, uh, someone 
mentioned that I do this a lot or whatever. And BDM was like, oh, well, he he does it because he's an optimist. And I'm just like, hold on. Like, I am just the most negative person ever, right? Like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, there's no way in hell that I'm an optimist, right? And he was like, no, you you are hard on people be, because you believe that, like, people are capable of much better, right? And you you just want them to see their full potential. And that is you know, like what makes you, you or whatever. And like, he wasn't wrong. Like he was absolutely a hundred percent right. And that sort of interaction is just absolutely life-changing where if, if that is my goal and that is the reason, you know, why, why I react this way and like, let people disappoint me and stuff like that. It's like, there, there are just a lot of better ways to interact with that. Where it's like, okay, well, like if someone is not hitting their full potential and I know that they are capable of better, how can I motivate them to actually be better and, you know, do this, do these things that would make me proud of them? And I I think he did a very good job just like in that little instance of conveying like how much he knew me and understood me, even though we were not like friends per se. Like we saw each other every other weekend and we chatted and stuff, but it's like he he gets to know every single individual person probably on a level that is deeper than their best friends know them. And that is purposeful on his part. You know, like he actually does care about the people who play the game and the human aspect of everything. And yeah, you know, it was, it was one of the few things that I think helped make me a better person today. Yeah. And that's the effect of someone who takes the time to, have a genuine interest in others and uh bdm i hope you get a chance to hear this i hope someone brings this to your attention you will be absolutely missed thank you for everything you've done 100 i will have to bring you some kind of cookie or something i know you're a cookie aficionado uh next time we cross paths i'll provide you with the cookies this time as a way to say thank you for everything you've done for the game thus far and i'm sure you will continue to do in the future no matter where your life takes you yeah, the, the good news is uh, he kind of gave me the, the Q&D version of what he's going to be doing and what he's going to be working on and stuff. And I do think it will give him time to still be involved in Magic to some degree if that's like going to some East Coast GP or something. I I think that will be a thing. Uh, so I, I'm excited to see that and you know see if the old man still got it, see if he can still hang. Yeah, maybe future Pro Tour competitor BDM, maybe he'll be listening to this podcast because he needs to know what the hot new deck is to play every week. We'll have him back in those kind of graces. Time will tell. Yeah, man, I'm I'm excited. So basically what you said, Brian, like, you know, thank you, BDM, for everything. It is much appreciated. And no, no matter what, I don't think that he has gotten enough thanks for all the things that he has done. Couldn't agree more. That's game.
Good luck. <laughs>